I want to welcome you here if it's your first time or first couple of times. It seems kind of ringy in my ears. <clears throat> that could have been all of the uh, shouts and uh, yelling that was going on yesterday when the Mariners finally pulled one out of the bag. I had to say that. What a game. I'm not here to talk about the Mariners, although finally I would like to. And finally, I, I was telling Tammy, I said, yesterday was the first, th- this, is, this is really unusual for me. It was the very first Mariners game I've seen all year. Usually I watch Mariners game. Uh, for us, we have a Dish Network dish, and Dish Network has been in this long feud with Root Sports, and it's really got me bent out of shape. I was about ready to throw it all in the garbage. And, uh, <laughs> oh, amen. I knew that was coming. I kind of teed it up. That being said, uh, they finally played on a different network, and, uh, and I finally got to see them win a game and get into the playoffs, so. Uh, we're not here to talk about the Mariners so much. We're here to talk about the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week, we started off, week number one was last week, in the Gospel of Mark. And um, uh, the Gospel of Mark is really this um, hard-hitting, fast-paced gospel account of who Jesus is and, and what he has done. Uh, John Mark, I give a lot of background on John Mark last week, so I'll just... Just recap, just real quick. John Mark was a, a close uh, disciple, if you will. He was mentored by the Apostle Peter. Uh, the, all of the scholars say that, that uh, Peter, and not just scholars, but church historians, early church fathers, all wrote about the fact that the, the Apostle Peter uh, gave John Mark this word to share with the world. He gave him. So this is really Peter's gospel in a way, but it was written down by this fellow, John Mark, there's a lot of background. Uh, John Mark and the Apostle Peter have a lot in common in regard to uh, both of them at one point or another kind of deserted the faith or deserted the mission that they were on and then repented and came back and kind of were reconnected with the Lord and reconnected with the church. And, and so they share a lot in common. Peter calls him in, in the epistle of First Peter, I think it's five, he calls him his beloved son. So I mentioned last week where the Apostle Peter has the, the connection with John Mark a lot like the Apostle Paul has a connection with Timothy. Uh, both of them see them as, uh, as their sons in the faith, so to speak. But this is a really a hard-hitting and a fast-paced book. One of the indicators for that, and I'm going to step back a verse, two verses from where we're going to start, but one of the uh, indicators that we see that it's a, a fast-paced book is the word immediately. Immediately shows up in the Gospel of Mark 40 times. Uh, that's a pretty good indicator that, that Mark is just recording or he's getting it from Peter and he's just putting down this and then that and then this and then that. And it, so it's, it's fast-paced. There's a lot of emphasis on the things that are happening and, and Mark writes a beautiful narrative of that. We see it used in the passage we looked at last week. If you look at... Mark 1.10, speaking of Jesus' baptism by the, John the Baptist, verse 10 starts off, and immediately coming from the water. That's like the first mention of it. And so immediately, as Jesus is coming out of the water, all these things happen. The, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. The heavens are tore open. and God the Father, you know, looks down, speaks out audibly for everybody to say, which is really rare in any gospel account. 
uh, or any biblical account, you don't see God speaking audibly. But it was a situation where everybody heard him say, well done, my son. Today's passage starts off with that same word, that same emphasis. So we're just going to dive right into it. And we got to... Uh, and, and, and I will give you a fair warning ahead of time. We're going to use these two verses as really a launching pad into the greater account of what's to come. But after that baptism there in 10 and 11, Mark 1, 12 starts off, and I'll just read these two verses. He says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angel ministered to him. That's all you got. That's all, Mark, that's all Peter tells Mark about uh, some really, really big events. So, so Mark's version, uh, we say, or Peter's version, is, is kind of tight, and it's, oh yeah, by the way, you know, Jesus was, was, uh, uh, was led out into the Wilderness, that's what Matthew and Luke say, Jesus being ushered out or led into the wilderness. It moves quickly, but we're going to actually slow down and look at some of the other Gospels to fill in the blanks of what's happening here in two verses. Now, the wilderness that Mark is talking about here really connects in this way, in the events of the wilderness, the temptation that Jesus is going to go through. I mentioned last week that, that in baptism, Jesus identifies with sinners in that baptism. Not that he was sinful, but he came to identify with mankind, to be fully man and fully God, and to be fully man, he had to identify with their sin. In the wilderness account that we're going to look at, I want to preface the whole thing with this statement. In the wilderness temptations that Jesus goes through for 40 days, put a star by that number, Jesus is going to identify with people's temptations. First, he identifies with their sin in baptism. Not that he was sinful, but now he's going to identify with their, the fact that we're all tempted. We're all tempted in many ways, the Word says. And Jesus, being fully man, is going, has to endure. It's part of the reason he came. He identifies with sinners in these temptations if you... Skin back, skim back to way back in the New Testament, Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So nobody through all of human history, nobody today can say, hey, I've had to endure something that Jesus didn't have to endure. The Bible says that that's absolutely untrue. That we have a high priest, we have a perfect sacrifice, we have a perfect advocate before the Father Himself and the throne of heaven right now who has endured anything or everything that you and I will ever face. Isn't that crazy to even think of? You say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, Mark. Uh, he didn't have a cell phone. He didn't need a cell phone. There was no cell towers in the first century. Let's just be, you know. He, it, it doesn't matter. It's not the object. It's the fact that he was tempted with whatever you might be tempted with in your cell phone. So we didn't have automobiles. Yeah, right. I get that. But he would be tempted with whatever you would be tempted with when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. 
He didn't have all the modern conveniences. That doesn't matter. It's not the thing. It's the fact that he was tempted. The word says we can stand on it and rest assured and know and believe and be encouraged by the fact that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he was tempted in all points. You know what the definition of all is? A little timer used to tell me this. All means all, and that's all all means. That's the way this little timer, we really knew the word of God, and that's what he said. He brings his theology down pretty tight, pretty easy to understand. When the Bible says all, it means all, and that's all it means. And so when it says that Jesus, right there in Hebrews 4.15, was at all points tempted as we are, that means that he faced anything and everything that mankind could possibly face via temptation. The wilderness experience put Jesus in the category where he could, he could fulfill that word coming in Hebrews, that he was uh, faced anything and everything, and he could identify then with your weakness, with my weakness. You might not want to talk about your weakness. That's fine. I'll talk about mine. He can identify with my weakness, my sinful temptations, my struggles, then back to the idea of 40 days from Mark 1, 12. The word says that Jesus was tempted 40 days. Uh, this is interesting to note. 40 is the biblical number for testing and or judgment. If you think about these three events in the Bible, all in the Old Testament, Noah's flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Moses kept sheep in the wilderness for 40 years before God brought him back. So 40 is kind of this idea of, of testing and or judgment, you might say. In this regard, it's definitely Jesus' time of testing. Jesus was tested in these 40 days. And Mark only mentions that Jesus was tempted. Uh, Matthew 4 is the other uh, passage. And Luke 4 go into this great detail about Jesus being tempted and tested in the wilderness. Before we go to, and I'm not going to go to both of those passages, we're going to go eventually to Luke chapter 4. But before we turn to Luke chapter 4, there's one more detail there in Mark 1 that he records that I find is kind of fascinating. I was doing some research and, and looking at it, and there's a phrase there where it says in verse 13 that Jesus was with the wild beasts. That never really caught my attention before. I just thought, well, hey, you're going to go out in the wilderness, guess what? You know, it's the same thing around here. You go wander up in the mountains. Those of us that like to wander up in the mountains, you're, you're with the wild beasts. And uh, I will say this, you might not see them, but I will guarantee you that they see you. That's just the nature of them. That's just the nature of the world that we live in. This is a little different, because when I say that we go up in the mountains and we're with the wild beast, we have this idea of proximity, which is true. But the original language here is a little different than just the fact that Jesus was in proximity to wild animals. Matthew and Luke really make no mention of this, uh, this aspect, but it is significant. And here's why it's significant. In the ancient Greek grammar, the emphasis is on that word with, and it means not just in proximity, but it means among, or another word, it means he was together with the wild beast. That's a different connotation. That, that's different than just, uh, hey, they're around. 
Watch out for the wolves, the bears, and the cougars. He was among them. In other words, I'll put it this way. In other words, Jesus was at peace with the wild animals, with the wild beast. That's a different picture. But it does show us a couple of things. It shows us that Jesus is the second Adam, and like unfallen Adam, uh, he enjoys a peaceful relationship with all the animals. So if you go back to Genesis, before Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve, they experienced a, a peaceful relationship with the wild animals. And we see if you go all the way the other way in your Bible to the last few chapters, you're going to see that aspect come true again. But the unfallen Adam had this, this easy relationship. It was his job to name all of the wild animals. It was his job to, to just categorically go through them. That's what God, that was his first job. Tend the garden and name the animals. And he had a peaceful relationship. That's what it's saying about Jesus. So Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus remains, though, unfallen, unlike Adam and Eve. Jesus remains unfallen, sinless, <clears throat> the sinless one, despite all of these temptations we're going to read about. And he has authority, then, over the wild beast, the word says. He has authority over the wild beast. And then the last part of that phrase, and the angels ministered to him. G. Campbell Morgan, a British theologian, author, and Bible teacher, wrote this, quote I really appreciate. He says, morally victorious, and he wrote this, I was reading commentary about this passage. He writes, morally victorious, he was master of the creation beneath him, and the angels ran upon his errands. For such is the real suggestiveness of the word. Thus he is seen as God's man, perfect in spite of the temptation. That's a great illustration, a great look, a great quote in regard to Jesus facing these temptations. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4, if you will, in your Bible. Haley will have it on the screen. Luke chapter 4, and let's look at these temptations. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 starts off, and I'll just read a, we'll just go through them a piece by piece here. Luke 4, one says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And, those, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when <clears throat> they had ended, he was hungry. Before we dive into the temptations, Luke sets it up with some key things here. Three keys to withstand temptation. One is being under the right influence. You have to be under the right influence to deal with temptation. You can't be under the wrong influence. You have to be under the right influence. And verse 1 says clearly that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. When we have the Spirit of the living God within us to lead us through the wilderness of temptation, we have all we need. Not exactly, but you're on the right track. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit to deal with temptation. The second thing, and I'll come back to the reason why I said not exactly, because later in the temptation we see two components, not just being filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's where we start. The second thing that he talks about in verse 2 is prayer and fasting. It's prayer and fasting. Look at verse 2. Being tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days, in those 40 days, he ate nothing. So Jesus was in this prayer and fasting mode, and 
And, and, here's, and, and at some day, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to talk more about fasting for sure, prayer and fasting. Uh, but in this context, here's, here's where that applies. And, it, and it's really a dynamic thing. Prayer and fasting is something that should set us up, so to speak, or, or prepare us for a difficult time. And a lot of us, and I'm the first one, prayer and fasting is the thing that we go to after hard times hit. Right? After a tough thing comes, that's our response. It should be on the front end, our preparation for a tough thing. So it really is a, used by God to prepare us for the coming testing. And what is it? It's a time of focused devotion on God plus self-denial in some area of life. That's what it is. Now for Jesus, for most of us, it's oftentimes, fat, when, we, when we talk about fasting, we're talking about abstaining from eating or but it can be broader than that in the sense that you can abstain from something. It's a sense of self-denial to focus on God. That's what fasting is for. A time of focused devotion on God with self-denial in some area of life. The third thing, the third thing, not so much, you don't see it directly quoted here, a third key to withstand temptation. Uh, but I thought that it, this verse was is so pivotal, pivotal, to understanding temptation uh, that I thought it was well worth to put in there. And that is this concept, that God is in control of the variables. We have very little control oftentimes. If you think about whatever thing you're going through or have gone through, how little control you had of all the variables and all of the things, the dynamics of this situation or that trial or that tribulation, you really find yourself at the end of it, hey, I, I didn't have any control. Uh, that's good news. Right? That's actually a good thing. God is in control of the variables when it comes to being tempted. Here's the verse that we talk about, or that, I, that was on my mind that I want to talk about, and it's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church about being tempted, about sin, about the struggle with sin, he says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Similar to what we read in Hebrews. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. Meaning you're not going to face anything that somebody else is not going to face. And you definitely are not going to face anything, Hebrews says, that Jesus hasn't already faced. But then the, Paul says this, but God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God's faithful. He's not going to hang you out to dry. He's not going to hang me out to dry in a, some area of temptation where he doesn't already have a game plan for you and I on how to deal with it. He already has that. So our response is to say, then, all right, Lord, then, then in my situation, what is your plan? What is your plan, God? Because his plan is what we're looking for, right? Am I wrong? Are we looking for God's plan? Somebody say something. Yeah, we're looking for God's plan. That's why we're here today. Right? It's not just to come and eat muffins and drink coffee, although that's not a bad idea. But we're here to find out what God's plan is. God's plan is, when it comes to temptation, God's plan is, is that He's faithful to walk you through it, and He's faithful to have a plan, a way of escape, Paul tells the Corinthians, that you may be able to bear it. That you might be able to bear it. 
See, see, we live a lot of life in our society trying to just avoid any bad thing. And, and, and there are temptations where the Bible clearly says, flee, run for the hills, run for your life, right? Don't stick around, you're going to get sucked in. All the guys are nodding their heads, yeah, I get it. But there's also temptations where we're called to stand and bear it because God has a plan in it. That's what Paul's getting across to the Corinthians church. Okay. Forty days. These three temptations did not all happen over the stretch of 40 days. This is just my conjecture. I think that Jesus was tempted in a lot of things over 40 days. And Luke and Matthew write down the three primary areas of temptation. That's my view. Take it for what you want. Temptation number one. Temptation number one is provision. Look at verse three, Luke four. Here's the first one. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Temptation number one of the top three is provision. We're tempted in the area of provision. We're tempted to compromise in the area of, of provision. Now, for guys, that looks different maybe for, than for ladies. For guys, maybe, maybe you're tempted in a way, uh, you know, that, that in, in regards to temp, uh, provision, that maybe your boss is asking you to do something that you know is clearly not ethical. But you don't want to lose your job. You don't want to lose that income. You've got a family to feed. You got, you got bills to pay. So the temptation comes in, how do I walk this out and, and, and how do I deal with this thing that's before me where I feel like I'm kind of being leveraged even though I don't want to. And Jesus was tempted, we're tempted in this category of provision. The question we have to ask ourselves is how do we deal with provision temptation? Do we panic? Do we justify? Do we rationalize? Do we compromise? How, how do we, what's our, what's our go-to to deal with the issues when we're tempted specifically in the area of provision? It's a question you can only really answer for yourself. And there's a little bit of a pattern really to all of these temptations. I'll get that out of the way. And here it is. There's two parts to it. The first part is, is that Satan appealed to a legitimate desire within Jesus. He appealed to a legitimate desire to eat. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. Uh, I'm guessing he's hungry. If I don't eat for 40 days, you're going to see a different mark. I'll guarantee it's true. And you're, you're going to see a guy that, you know, after 40 days is, is uh, climbed inside of a refrigerator. Uh, that, I'm just telling you. I'm just being honest which is probably not good if you think about fasting for 40 days. That shouldn't be your first go-to. But that was the temptation point, was in the provision for food. And so Satan appeals to this legitimate desire that Jesus would have to eat and to survive. And then the second part is that Satan suggests that Jesus fulfill this legitimate desire in an illegitimate way in an illegitimate way. 
Jesus had all the power, like I said, he's fully God, he's fully man. Could he have hypothetically turned these rocks into bread? Yeah. But it would have been an illegitimate way to exercise his deity. So Satan will appeal to us for a legitimate need in provision and in the next two ways. He'll, he'll, apply, he'll appeal to us in a, in a real and a tangible need that we have, but he will do so, he'll bring that appeal and the answer for that appeal in an illegitimate way. Something that's contrary to the word of God, something that's contrary to God's nature and definitely contrary to God's will. Do you find this pattern true in your own life? I want to stop for that question. Do you find this pattern? I do. I find that the enemy comes against me in legitimate areas with illegitimate methods. And get, we're, we're created with real needs. Jesus had a real need. He needed to eat. Fasting for 40 days is a pretty long time. He had a legitimate need. And the, the enemy will appeal to you and your uh, uh, needs and my needs in that same way. And it looks really good. The problem is, is the fulfillment of that need, as I mentioned earlier, is outside of God's will and His ways. So we'll always be tempted away from God as our provider. That's the essence of this temptation. Jesus was being tempted away from the Father, away from His ways, away from His will, to another direction. How do we deal with these types of temptations? Here's how Jesus dealt with them. Jesus dealt with them not only being filled with the Holy Spirit, as Mark records and as Luke and Matthew record, but he also dealt with them with the Scripture. Jesus fought this battle as a Spirit-filled and a Scripture-filled man. That was his posture. That's who he was. And here's the greatest part of it all. Because I know, I, I, I have this thought going through my mind, because it's always just there. Yeah, but he was really God too. Don't you have that thought? Like, when you're reading through these, it's like, yeah, but you kind of give Jesus a pass in a way in reading through these accounts, because he was really God too. I do. I have. Here's something critical to think on in regard to that. Jesus drew on no divine resources that are unavailable to us in this temptation. He didn't, create, he didn't do a miracle. There was no miracle inside of him. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't say that, you know, immediately, you know, his craving for food went away supernaturally. Not at all. Jesus drew on no resource to fight off this temptation that is not available to you and I. That's a super promise. That's a super benefit for us as Christ followers, amen? Draw no divine resources. We effectively resist temptation in the same way that Jesus did. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can answer Satan's seductive lies by shining the light of God's truth upon them. That's all he did. Jesus was, Satan was twisting scripture, Jesus straightened it out. He answered him according to God's word. And here's the danger. If we are ignorant of God's word, we're poorly armed to fight against these temptations. That's why knowing what the word of God says is so critical. It's not just for head knowledge that we can be smarter. It's for practical wisdom and application 
so that we can live life and not be constantly bombarded and fall to temptation when it comes all the time. So we have to know God's word. We have to discern what's going on in the situation that we're on. We need to be thoroughly equipped, the word says, to fight against these temptations. Luke goes on to say in verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give give you and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Pretty hefty. You put that in the context of what that means, like they didn't know what the Western Hemisphere was back then. But if you could put it in the context of what what we now know 2,000 years later, all the kingdoms of the world uh, could be Jesus in a moment, and he saw it all in a moment of time, and it could be all his for one bend, bend of the knee, for one bow of the head, Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The second temptation that Jesus faced, major category, is the temptation of power. The temptation of power. Since the fall of man in the garden, uh, Satan has been the ruler of this world, John 12, 31 tells us, and He's also been the power, the prince of the power of the air. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. Since Satan possesses the glory of the kingdoms of this world and can give that power to who he wishes, it should not be a surprise to us then that ungodly uh, rise up in positions of power and prestige. I'm not saying that this is outside of God's will. I'm just saying that there is a transaction there that happened where Satan became obviously in control of the kingdoms of this world. He was given that authority from the Father in the fall of man. Now he's trying to use that against the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus. See, the reason why is that he knew that Jesus had come to win the kingdoms of this world. This temptation and power was an invitation to win back the world that was lost to sin. That's why Jesus came, to win back, to get back, if you will, that which was lost, to restore that which was lost. The problem is, is it had one significant shortcut. It meant to win back the world with, for Jesus, but it meant him doing that without going to the cross. He could have it all now. Instant gratification. He could have it all right in that moment. All of it. Instantly. Satan would simply just give it to him if Jesus would bend his knee to him and worship him. And we get tempted in the same way. Maybe not. (laughs) You probably don't have somebody coming to you and saying, hey, I'll give you the whole globe if you worship me. That's not what I'm saying. Here's how our temptations happen, but it's, it's the same thread if you pull it long enough. We get tempted in that same way because we're tempted to take shortcuts to authority and power. Mankind is. Constantly being tempted 
to take shortcuts to authority and to power. It all started in the garden with the fall of Adam and Eve, and it stretches to this moment right here today. All through human history, there's been this riding, constant pressure and temptation for mankind to take a shortcut, to get there quicker, to get there sooner, to not do it God's way, to do it their own way. Matthew 20 through 20, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, tells the story of the mother of the two disciples asking Jesus to place her sons in authority in the coming kingdom. And Jesus replies there in verse 23. I'm just going to read it to you. <clears throat> I don't know if it's on the screen or not. But Jesus' reply in verse 23 says this in regard to this request. He says, But to sit on my right hand and to sit on my left is not mine to give but it's for those whom is prepared by my Father. Christ followers need to be focused on the authority that God has created. We, we as, as Jesus followers, we, we have to be focused on what God is preparing. And, and, and in that preparation, then it's easier to see the areas that we're tempted to go astray and to take some sort of a shortcut. Matthew goes on to say that true leaders then are servants. Matthew 20, 28, the end of that passage, says, Jesus says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, that's who Jesus was, that's who Mark really pro- pro- portrays Jesus as, the servant king, the servant king, it's through and through the book of Mark, he puts out this idea that Jesus is the servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Jesus knew that he had to serve, he had to suffer, and he had to sacrifice. That was the mission. That was the summary of him coming. And all of that had to happen before he would reign. He didn't take a shortcut. He didn't skip over any steps. He didn't take the the quick and easy way that Satan was offering him to the throne. Now, if you go to the back of the Bible, the book of Revelation says this in Revelation 11.15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forevermore, speaking of Jesus. So the the reality of the physical side of it is going to come. That promise still is out there to come in a tangible way. But Jesus didn't take a shortcut to get to 11.15. Uh, Revelation 11, by succumbing to, to Satan's temptation to have it now. He stayed on task. See, Satan was offering this 11.15 to him in the present, but it was all before the agony of the cross. It was all a shortcut around the cross. Thank God that he didn't take that shortcut, amen? That means something for you and I. For us, don't fall into the illusion of worldly power and control. And that's exactly what it is. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. I, I listened to some podcasts this last week uh, about a... Um, I'm going to get his name wrong. A guy running for the Senate out of Oklahoma. And, he taught, and he's been a congressman. <clears throat> so I step over to the other side and, and he's running... Oh, what's his name? Mark Wayne something. Um, 
But he was talking about just the, the, the corruption, the allure and the corruption that is in there in politics. And he's a Christ follower. And so, <clears throat> you know, he, he, he purposes himself to not be drawn in to try to stay on task of why he wants to represent the people of Oklahoma. And, but the, 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 just the, the temptation that's there at every angle. He's, you got everybody in the world back there in Washington, D.C. dangling any carrot out in front of you. All of these uh, uh, lobbyists, all these major companies, big you know, uh, corporations, uh, people with an agenda here and people with an agenda there. And he's, it's, he said, <clears throat> essentially, he said, it's almost unbearable what you get bombarded with. Don't fall into the illusion of worldly power and control that the enemy has to offer. What was Jesus' reply? Uh, he gets pretty emphatic with this one. He says this, get behind me, Satan. He said that, he's going to say that again coming up. You know the story of interaction between him and Peter. But, but he is making a proclamation. Jesus is not just saying, you know, physically get behind me while we're standing up here looking at all this stuff. He's saying, you're not number one in my life. You're not the greatest thing there is. You're not the greatest deity, or you're not deity at all, but you're not number one in my life. He says, get behind me. I have a will to fulfill. I got a duty and a task that I'm sent to do. So he's really telling Satan, get in the back. Get behind me. Uh, James says, his half-brother says something similar in James 4, 7. He says it this way, and this is what I was talking about in the beginning of the sermon. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's times where you just have to stand up and be a man. There's times where you have to stand up and be a woman of God and a man of God and say, no. No, I'm, no this is where it stops, right here. I'm resisting this temptation. I'm not going anywhere. You're going somewhere. Then he says this, for it's written, we worship God and we serve him alone. He refocused the priority. Despite the temptation, Jesus refocuses the priority and the purpose to worship God. And you can't worship two things. He's going to say this later on in the Gospels. You can't worship two things. He says later you can't worship God and money. Here he's essentially saying, I can't worship you, Satan, and worship the Heavenly Father. It's impossible. So he says no to the temptation, no to the allure of all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I would rather worship God and serve Him alone. We're doing pretty good on time. Back to Luke <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 9. Luke 4, 9 says this. Then he brought him, speaking of Satan, bringing Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answers and said to him, <clears throat> It has been said that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I'm going to pause right there. We'll come back to verse 13. The third temptation, the first one is provision. Temptation number two is power. And this one is protection. 
this is this is one that this is one that that uh, is is has its own unique uh, attributes. I want to say, and 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 they all kind of have them in a sense because we're all hardwired towards provision in some way. In fact, it's good for us to provide for ourselves and for our families. Uh, power's not a bad thing. Power's a good thing. Authority is a good thing. God institutes and ordains authority. So it's a good thing. And so is protection. So is protection. Protection is a good thing until it's twisted out of control. Protection is a, is a, is a powerful testimony. The Word says that uh, love has no greater uh, uh, example than when somebody lays down their life for somebody else. That's protecting the somebody else by giving up yours. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. There's no better expression of love, the word says. But Satan took Jesus here to this prominent high place, the pinnacle of the temple, from this wall surrounding the temple mount, and it was uh, hundreds of feet to the rocky valley floor below. And he quotes to him Psalm 91. And when Satan says, for it is written, uh, it reminds us of one thing, that Satan is a Bible expert and knows how to twist Bible passages out of context. That's the other reason why we need to know what the Word says. Because then we'll know if it's quoted out of context. We'll know if it's quoted in error. We'll know if it's misapplied in the wrong area. And a lot of times, that's just simply what it is. A lot of people have uh, the word in their mouth, or they have their word on their tongue, but it's misapplied in the wrong area. And good discernment, good Bible knowledge, along with the exercise, right? Hebrews says that it's, it's, it's the exercise. It takes exercise. It takes sweat and, and investment. It takes time. It takes opportunities. And guess what? When we're doing those things, there's going to be times where we get it wrong. That doesn't mean we quit. That means we just get back up and keep going. It takes effort. It takes discipline to know what the Bible says. The enemy is the master at twisting the Bible out of context. In fact, he does it with all three of these temptations. How do we discern then when the Bible is misquoted? There's, a, there's an easy way. I'm, I'm not saying that we should do this in lieu of spending the time and the effort and the energy and, and study. Absolutely, we should do that. But <clears throat> let me give you the, 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 the quick way, in a sense. The first filter, maybe, that you could use, the first filter that I use when I hear something that's out of context. And that is, is this, is that it elevates self-promotion. When the Bible is misquoted or mishandled or misused, it elevates this idea of self-promotion. And that's what Satan was getting to here with Jesus. Hey, 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 you know, he was appealing to the, I know that you're God, part of him. And he was saying, hey, just, just step off. You know, doesn't the Bible say, doesn't the Bible say that, that the angels are, you're not going to dash your foot on the stone, Psalm says. That you're going to be fine. You, do we, do we understand fully, folks, what he's tempting him to do on a physical sense? He's tempting him to try to commit suicide. Do we understand that that's what's going on here? 
that he's inviting the Son of Man, he's inviting uh, God the Son (laughs) in physical form to just step off this high ledge. He's asking him. He's, he's, he's asking. That's why Jesus replies to him, don't put God to the test, which is essentially what, and, and I'm really sensitive. I want to stop and say I'm, I'm very sensitive to issues of, uh, when people are struggling with suicidal tendencies, for sure. But in a way, and very clearly in the Scriptures, it's putting God to the test. And this specific test was just exactly that. Satan was trying to get him to appeal to his deity. He was trying to get him to to test the Father's greater will of what was going on here. He's trying to test him by trying to trick him into committing suicide. That's self-promotion. Not that suicide is self-promotion, but the act of testing God is self-promotion. It's self-promotion over God's plan. That's what it is. That's the, that's the first filter test. When, when the Bible, when the word is mishandled, misused, misquoted, is that somebody along the way is promoting themselves over God's plan. In fact, really all three of these passages are really about that. All three of these temptations that Satan brought Jesus' way, they have in common this particular point, that there was an elevation of the flesh over the spirit. There was an elevation of, 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 of Jesus. Uh, Satan was trying to get Jesus to elevate himself to feed himself. He's trying to get Jesus to elevate himself to, to, to rule the world if he'd just bend the knee. He's trying to get Jesus to elevate himself by stepping off and showing that the angels would tend to it. Jesus answers in verse 12. It's been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 13 says this, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, if the worship team wants to come on up, we'll wind this thing down. <coughs> Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Know this, just because you have a, uh, just because you have a, have a, maybe a particular uh, season in your life where you've been tempted with something and then however that ended and however maybe it's gone or faded away, that doesn't mean that the, that just means that there's a he's just going to circle back around. He's just going to come back around in a different format until another opportune time. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians about having being well armored, being well suited with the armor of God is so critical because that armor is what protects us. If you look at book of Ephesians, you'll see that. Jesus was well armored. Mark records this. I think it was in Matthew. I'm mistaken. I'll skip it. No, I want to come back to it. 
The last thing I want to say, though, is regardless of all of these temptations, uh, all of them say, in a way, uh, Mark records that the angels ministered to him. They ministered to Jesus. And I want to say this, because <clears throat> this, uh, this gets really tricky in our culture, because, frankly, there's a lot of angel worship in our culture that is really out there. Uh, <clears throat> angels are not for us to worship, straightforwardly. But God uses the angelic realm to minister to us from time to time in a way that's, that a lot of times is kind of unexplainable. And a lot of times we don't know, you know, uh, Paul writes, you may be even entertaining angels. Somebody comes in, somebody we don't know, somebody, you know, a uh, stranger, whatever, uh, somebody alongside the road that needs a ride. You name the scenario. How do you know? You don't know. The question is, is will you be led by the Lord consistent with his word, but also receptive to the sense that God does things sometimes that are kind of unexplainable, kind of out of the norm. And that's not to highlight them above the norm. It's just that God uses that. And God used the angels to minister to Jesus in a way that, uh, that he saw fit. And we have to be okay with that. And being okay with that doesn't mean that that's then we turn our attention to them and and uh, do all of this, you know, uh, turn our focus and our worship towards them. We just understand that God uses the angelic realm in a way that uh, we don't always fully understand. That's okay. That's all right. That's a good thing. The fact is that Jesus was built back up physically. He was, he was built up in his spirit, uh, spiritually. And he was set to go then from there into ministry. And... Uh, and the spiritual side of things that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks kind of blow your mind if it happened in today's society. I really think so. Because we're going to see this just boom, immediately, boom, immediately, boom, immediately. Jesus is just jumping right into the mix the way that Mark writes his gospel. Let us uh, stand together. We're going to go ahead and close with our last worship song.